Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Yes, this is the place. Come in. And know that you are welcome, welcome to the Nook, to Tales to Terrify, and to the week after World Horror Convention 2014, at which the Bram Stoker Awards for Superior Achievement in, well, in many things, in novel, first novel, short fiction, long fiction, poetry, collection, et al., were presented to those writers, editors, publishers who earned them. Come, come in, grab a treat, beverage, chum, and seat, and snuggle down. The air is on, thus providing a pleasantly chill atmosphere in this muggy near summer night. The candles flicker in the breeze, thus emphasizing the darkness they so inadequately dispel. So, what more could you want? Well... One thing you might want is the complete rundown of the Stoker Award winners. They are posted on the Tales to Terrify Facebook page as of last Saturday morning, but in case you are an eschewer of Facebook, here they are. And please take it as given that all the awards are for superior achievement in whatever the form happens to be. To begin, novel, Stephen King, for Dr. Sleep. Scribner. First novel, Rena Mason, The Evolutionist, from Nightscape Press. Young adult novel, Joe McKinney, Dog Days, Journal Stone. Graphic novel, Caitlin R. Kiernan, Alabaster Wolves, Dark Horse Comics. Long fiction, Gary Bronbeck, The Great Pity, from Chiral Mad 2, written backwards. Screenplay, Glenn Mazzara, The Walking Dead, Welcome to the Tombs, AMC-TV. Anthology went to editor Eric J. Guignard for After Death, Dark Moon Books. 
fiction collection, Laird Barron, The Beautiful Thing That Awaits Us All, and other stories from Nightshade Books. Nonfiction, William F. Nolan, Nolan on Bradbury, 60 Years of Writing About the Master of Science Fiction, Hippocampus Press. Poetry Collection, Marge Simon, Rain Graves, Charlie Jacob, and Linda Addison. Four Elements, Bad Moon Books, Evil Jester Press. And the category most pertinent to us here in the Nook, Short Fiction. David Gerald, Night Train to Paris, from the Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction, January-February 2013, and which we heard just last week here in the Nook. Now, in addition to the Bram Stoker Awards, the following were also presented at last weekend's celebration. The Lifetime Achievement Awards went to Stephen Jones and R.L. Stein. The Specialty Press Award went to Greyfriar Press, the Silver Hammer Award for Outstanding Service to the Horror Writers Association went to Norman Rubenstein, and the President's Richard Lehman Service Award went to J.G. Faraday. Congratulations to all, and I say that with complete honesty this year. This year, as in so many bygone years, I was not a Stoker finalist, so again, congratulations to all finalists and in particular to all who took home the little brown house of superior achievement. Ah, well, one of these days, I suppose I just have to become a better writer. Oh, another thing you might want to know about. This year, as in all years, World HorrorCon saw the release of many new books. Among them was... Enter at Your Own Risk. The End is the Beginning. Edited by Dr. Alex Scully. Full disclosure, yes, my story, So Many Tiny Mouths, has found a new home in there. But apart from that, Enter at Your Own Risk also has work by, well, by lots of people you know. It is big, generous, 384 pages, and features tales that question what might be crawling out from the eternal sludge to knock humankind off the top of the food chain. It's available now on Amazon and on Kindle. And remember, enter at your own risk. The end is the beginning. You'll like it. And now, for the evening's entertainments. To begin, we have Mike Allen, who will lead us on a tour of the abattoir that is his heart. This time, the tour will lead you into some personal space for Mr. Allen. Well, you'll hear. So, Mike? Greetings, Tales to Terrify listeners. And welcome to a new installment of Tour of the Abattoir. I'm Mike Allen, and today, with the blessings of the Dark Master himself, Lawrence Santoro, I'm going to cheat death. Or, if you will, I'm going to bend the purpose of this column, just to make sure I have something to tide you over with 
during my time of trial. You see, I've only read one book this past month, my own. I suppose I could provide you with a review of my own book, but I imagine you'd consider my opinion a little bit biased. <laughs> this is the short story collection that I've been talking to you about for two years. It's called Unseeming, and it holds 14 of my stories, five of them new this year. Laird Barron kindly wrote an introduction to the book. Thomas Ligotti actually gave me editing advice. That was really cool. And advanced reader copies are going to be available in about a month. Needless to say, I'm a bit excited, even a little nervous. I have a lot riding on this book. I think it's the best thing I've put out on offer yet. But again, I'm a little bit biased. Nonetheless, I want to make sure everyone else thinks so too, which is why I've spent the past few weeks proofing it with the help of my wonderful friend Francesca Forrest. That process hasn't left me any time to digest other material from other sources to spew back at you. So I made a proposal to Larry, and he accepted. Some time back, I made a recording of one of the stories in Unseeming. It's called Let There Be Darkness. This recording was for a different project, not connected with Tales to Terrify, that never achieved liftoff. Larry is graciously allowing me to share that recording with you as this week's column. I hope you'll consider it a surprise fiction bonus. Now next time, I'll be providing a compare and contrast review of two much-talked-about collections of creepy fiction, Jagannath by Karen Tidbeck and Hairside Fleshside by Helen Marshall. I look forward to sharing those thoughts with you once I have them to share. But for now, this story. Let There Be Darkness by Mike Allen The past eludes me, yet I know the future with the clarity of vivid memory. A grand contradiction in my father's design that remains, to me, a mystery. A day will come when the sun's pale yellow stare starts to fill with the taint of blood. Among the confused and tremulous hordes of mankind, amidst the endless processions of grand towers forged from metal stolen from the moon, I will walk, one knowing face, one unique being traversing the rivers of humanity that flood this world. Unknown now, unknown when it begins, but I shall not remain unnoticed. When the time comes, I will not hide what I am. My life, a long cycle of waiting to make the offer I must make. At first, my words will be mere rumor, circulating among the residents of the underdepths. My message will find its way among the filthy creatures dwelling in the sewer networks deep beneath our urban blight. Creatures whose only light come from the poisons that make their eyes phosphorescent. Whispers will find the ears of the affluent and mad who seal themselves away in underground vaults, hoarding treasures from every age, hiding from some real or imagined cataclysm, yet striving to hold control of the lands above. I will wait. Through one path or another, bubbling up through the earth, my message will emerge into day's dimming light. Those who seek me shall find me. 
my misshapen face, for by human eyes it is so perceived, printed in two dimensions, projected in three, shall form the center of every conversation, rotating slowly atop the great round tables where corporate councils meet, regarded in puzzlement and awe, placed on private altars and worshipped, precious oil burned, rare beasts slaughtered, even, most horrible of all, children slain to gain my favor. Against a growing chaos, I will speak the same words over and over, the network of technology that wraps the world in its web providing my forum. My offer, carried as pulses of light, beamed to the void and back again. This world is dying. Very little time remains. Soon all you've become, all you have ever dreamed of becoming, will be scoured away. But humanity need not perish. He who first brought you into being didn't intend for you to die with this world. Give me your fealty. Ask in humility, and I, as his messenger, will strive to grant your kind a second life. Beneath the flickering light of my burning effigy, religious despots will thunder ridicule, and their followers will chant murder in the streets. Through communication channels wired straight into the heads of their desperate listeners, the rationalists and analysts will call me mad, an exploiter, a charlatan, a parasite. Yet many more, hearing whispers from shadows of memories too ancient to be understood, will know my creed for truth. Knowing this, despite my visions of the imminent future, my heart will fill with hope, a human sentiment surely gained from so many eons among them. Is it possible, with so much of the past behind me, that I will have forgotten the hideous service mankind grants its saviors? The sensations so vivid, the terrors so real, I feel them now as I will then. Rough hands roust me from a dreamless sleep, seize my wrists in crushing grips, tear at the folds of my gown. Fingers twine in my tangled locks, drag me out into a moonless night. My scalp screams as the follicles tear out. Black fluid covers my eyes, clogs my vision. My assailants fill my ears with angry babble. Their fingernails strip my gown away, strip skin from my back, belly, breasts. Outside this frail vessel that carries my soul, a flurry of sensations of being bound, held high in the air, bleeding, a crowd's chorus of jeers, traveling swift in a craft along an ill-made path, descending, a shower of blows, a rough grope that ends in a cry of disgust, ascending. Inside this vessel, a mounting shrill of fear, knowing what I will see when my vision clears. When my blood-crusted eyes can finally open, a terrifying vista below, the twisting neon spires of the tallest towers of man glow ethereally in the darkness, seen from the rooftop of the tallest tower of all. Painfully harsh grips keep me doubled over, force me to my knees, dangle me head first over the edge. But when I twist my neck, I glimpse the stars. This night, their clusters shine brighter than any stellar panorama I will ever see with these eyes. I gaze heavenward and know my silent appeal is useless. Beneath my terror, a sorrow blooms. Whether mankind itself chooses its final course, or a mad, misguided few, it will not be mine to know. I make no protest at their mishandling. I leave their angry accusations, their hysterical demands, their threats of violation, unanswered. 
The blade of light pierces me between the breasts, thrusts upward, parting the walls of my belly. My only sound, a gasp, as my body cavities empty into the abyss. A black, viscous flow baptizes the darkness beneath me. Those who clutch this emptied vessel, who see what flows from my gutted corpse, will know then that I was never human. Even as they let my body fall, they will know. All will feel my passing from the flesh. My sorrows, an affectation from my time among humans, left behind with the shell I once wore. Liberated, I shall grieve no more. I, a tiny mode of nothingness, a vast discorporeal consciousness enveloping the world, will dance through the torrents of wind and weather, swim in the gulfs between atoms, and wait. The energies that bound me to my body, loosed in a massive burst, detected by the instruments of my destroyers, defying analysis. Their learned ones will flounder for explanations. A reverse in polarity, a warning from God, a message from the spirit mother, a formation of a white hole, the opening of a wormhole, a beacon call. Their radiologists will marvel. Their astronomers will speculate at a grand disturbance in the cosmos, a surge in background cosmic rays. They'll mutter in alarm at a tremendous dark mass discovered by their forests of radio telescopes, appearing spontaneously at the galaxy's edge, generated from nothing, emerging from nowhere. A drifting mass of dark matter. A dark nebula, perhaps, spilled through a rift in the fabric of space. Only my father. Aroused by my dying call, awakening for the first time after a billion human lifetimes of sleep. Their scientists shall whisper among themselves about the missing piece of the night sky, a widening blotch along the path of the Milky Way, invisible at first to the naked eye, a strip of stars the same age, formed from a nebula parsecs wide, all dying, all winking out at once. A dense cluster of gases propelled toward Earth by the force of the titanic black hole in the galaxy's center? Only my father, swimming between the stars, drawn to the planet where his daughter died. Their priests and priestesses will offer shrill prayers, beseeching their lords to impart the meaning of the horrendous dark shadow that swallows the night sky, blotting the stars until nothing remains but pitch black. An omen of Armageddon? A dimming of light before the celestial spheres rend? The second coming arrived at last, the vast darkness but the underside of new Jerusalem's greater glories? Only my father, closer to his destination than any earthbound dreamer in the most twisted of nightmares could ever conceive. Constellations occasionally glimpsed in the black night, wavering, fading, the stars that define them dancing around each other, shifting, merging, their shine distorted through my father's thick corona. Auroras cavort in twilight hours, horizon-spanning fans of blazing iridescence, triggered in the ionosphere by the winds of radiation that compose my father's breath. In midnight hours, rolling waves of mad color burst across the heavens, widening, spreading, vanishing, stars flickering within them like glowing fish seen in the abyss. Moon-sized spheres like raw red suns appear suddenly, cast aside the darkness, paint the world like an open wound, then gone. 
The children of earth will babble, scream, and shriek at what they see in the night. Some will panic, hide, resort to murder, or suicide. More tragic yet, some will welcome the sights, thinking them signs of some wondrous new contact, the start of some long-awaited dream of rapture. But the greatest tragedy of all will be the shroud of ignorance that smothers every one of them, the power that could have given them new life, here to end the cycle of their evolution. Those who will suffer for the murder of his daughter, doomed never to understand the cause. When dawn ends a new moon's night, my father's single six-lobed hand shall appear opposite the sun, a monstrous billowing deformity dwarfing that stained yellow eye. As the world spins, my father's hand will rise in the western sky, ascending to meet the sun in the east. Pouring from their towers, crazed masses of humanity will reach undreamed-of peaks of barbarism. Men of the urban blight will parade their dismembered children and women through the streets. Military engines will sweep their killing lasers through the crowds, bringing rains of blood and severed limbs. The skyscrapers that pierce the stratosphere will spill human flesh from every window, bodies piling hundreds of feet deep, those trapped beneath crushed by the sheer weight of their fellows. But despite all supplications, despite all attempts to escape, my father's hand will eclipse the sun. As my father's fingers close, that star's golden corona will shine out between the narrowing gaps, struggling still to give life to its daughter world. Then, absorbed in his nebulous substance, the sun's light will die, the earth cast in darkness, and the whole of humanity will see my father's true face, the face of their creator, blotting out the cosmos. Then the fires will come, shock waves from the dying sun, stellar matter loosed from my father's fist. The earth's surface purged of life, its crust cracking open, vomiting its innards into the void, turning itself inside out. But mankind will not die. My father, governor of energies and forms, will bind them to their bodies. Cast out into the cold of space, blood boiling, still they will live. Buried in the molten floods, trapped inside the cooling rock, still they will live. Burned in hollowed-out shells, wandering the lifeless, airless hulk of their planet, still they will live. The energies fueling the minds and spirits of the human race... Bonds stronger, break brighter than those of any species blessed by his intervention in their evolution. My father will not let his creations go to waste. The shimmering, ragged pucker of my father's maw will rise above the ruined earth, so enormous no human still possessed of eyes will ever glimpse the whole of it. Then his mouth will open, and yet another behind it, and one behind that, infinite tunnel of billion-fanged mouths receding into his star-swallowing gullet. Yet the earth will not be consumed. Instead, he will draw one great breath, Stripped from the planet's surface, pried from the rock, snatched from space, all his creations will be drawn into him. All the men and women and children, their bodies boiled, broken, and burned, hurled through the endless procession of stellar mouths. Even the energies of the discorporated dead, from the apes whose minds first awakened to those who perished during the sun's death— Drawn into the labyrinth of tunnels through time and space that compose my father's pulsing veins. 
And where will I be? When he comes, I will rejoice. And when he begins his journey to a new universe, I will join him. The humans, their writhing shapes howling, endlessly digested, reformed, digested, reformed, to fuel my father for his travels. Their screams, to me, only music. Celestial child, I will cavort through the time streams that carry my father's blood, delighting in the perpetual motion machine that is my sire. The past eludes me, yet I know the future with the clarity of vivid memory, a grand contradiction in my father's design that remains, to me, a mystery. Each night I lie awake, pondering why he would bind me here to play savior to man, to offer them all the chance to evolve beyond the limits the universe has given them, yet leave me with the certain knowledge that his plan will fail. A lesson, perhaps, that I once understood, its significance denied to me now, that will prepare me for my eons as a world-maker. How I long for our reunion, that at long last he may enlighten me. That story first appeared in Penny Dreadful in 1998, and will be reprinted later this year in my forthcoming short story collection, The Button Bin and Other Stories, from Dagon Books. You can find them at dagonbooks.com. That's D-A-G-A-N books.com. And until next time, stay scared. Hmm. The Dark Master himself. I never thought of myself as a dark master. Maybe a dark superintendent. Well, I wonder what rights and privileges pertain thereunto for dark masters. Well, anyway, thank you for Let There Be Darkness, Mike. I look forward to the rest of the book. And now, more fiction. Our second tale of the evening is from Mr. T. T. Tressel. T. T. Tressel lives in Ottawa, Canada, at a place he describes as just an aerodynamic stone's throw from the Parliament buildings. Well, a stone's throw if you have the strength of ten, he says. His fiction has received several honorable mentions in the year's Best Fantasy and Horror, and his work has been nominated for a Pushcart Prize. I am quite pleased that we have this little fang noir piece, and I don't want to belabor the introduction of it any longer. So, children, belt down a full wash of Glenfiddich and be warned. There are monsters here, and bloody sexy bits too, so snuggle with your chum and prepare for T.T. Tressel's Having a Drink. Could you pass me the clicker? I said to the new bartender. She was a big, sloppy redhead wearing globs of purple mascara and a matching oversized t-shirt. The what? She said. Her short haircut made her red hair stand up in places, 
Her pals probably called her something like Joe or Sam. The clicker, I said. I can't watch any more of that. I nodded at the bodybuilder being interviewed on the TV above the ratty pool table. He was talking about his work in underdeveloped countries. I wasn't sure if he meant poor countries or skinny countries. Hmm, said Sam. I kind of like it. She folded her arms over her purple t-shirt. She wasn't carrying a dish rag like Bob always did, pretending to clean the grubby glasses that were a specialty of OG's tavern. Sort of ruined the ambiance. I smiled at her, putting some heat in it. What if I told you I'm allergic to men in thongs? She laughed. Okay, you win, handsome. She reached under the bar for the clicker. Thanks, I said and zapped the bodybuilder. I stopped clicking when I reached a Gilligan's Island rerun. Marianne and Ginger, Technicolor dream women. Why did Gilligan and his buddies want to leave the island? You like that show? I gazed at her, putting some smoke in it. It's Ginger. I'm a sucker for redheads. She laughed again, but I could see I had slipped one through. Her cheeks were flushing, making her look like the world's largest schoolgirl. I have another question for you, I said. I smiled, trying to make more pink appear in her cheeks. She wasn't buying this time. The schoolgirl was hidden back in grade school memories. I'd have to put more heat in it to get a response. I had 3,000 green beauties tucked away in the lining of my suit jacket. What did I need to get Sam all hot and bothered for? She crossed her arms again, waiting. It's about the name of this place, I said. Do you know how to pronounce it? Bob had said it twice in the five months I'd been coming to O.G.'s Tavern. One time it sounded like Odges, the other, and I think Bob had been a bit soused, like Ogle. She gave me a purple shrug. I don't know, Oggies? That's why I loved it here, the element of mystery. Do you know? She cocked an auburn eyebrow at me. Yes, I do. I took a long sip of Glenfiddich, waiting to see what exactly it was I knew. It was originally two words. During Prohibition, this place was a speakeasy and didn't have a sign. The two words were a secret code for patrons to identify the place without getting nabbed. She leaned on the bar. Really? Yep. The two words were, oh, geez. So one guy might say, oh, geez, I'm thirsty. And the other guy would know exactly what and where he meant. That's pretty wild, she said. I nodded sagely. Even today, some of us, regulars, still use the secret code. For example, I waved at the ratty pool table, the mismatched tables and chairs. Oh, geez, I can't believe I'm in this dump again. She loved it. Oh, geez, she repeated, laughing. Is that really true? Would I lie to you? And then, because I was rich again, because I didn't have a date with Mrs. Welton until next Friday, I broke the most cherished of the OG's Tavern's rules. I spoke to another patron. He was drinking alone at the other end of the bar. What do you think? I said. How do you say the name of this place? He was large, with a glistening bald head. The first name that jumped into my head seemed more than appropriate. Mung. Fuck off said Mung, without looking at me. He emphasized his point by flexing one bulbous arm. Hey, said Sam to me, don't bother the other customers. I know how to say it, said the old black guy sitting at the table next to the entrance. He had a basketball-sized afro like Link from the Mod Squad. His papery lumberjack shirt hung down to his knees. I smiled at him, more than a little surprised another patron had spoken. It's O.J.'s, said Link. He nodded. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. His chin at the dented jukebox on the other side of the entrance. He bopped his afro around as if he could hear. Love train coming from the jukebox. OJ's Taverns. I snapped my fingers. I like the sound of that. Damn straight, said Link. I turned to the last patron. She was hunched over the Pac-Man video game table near the hallway leading to the washrooms. A piece of cardboard with out of ord scrawled on it was taped to the side of the table. And what do you think? I said. I kept my smile friendly. No point wasting any heat on her. She looked too housewifey to be potential client. Her purse was way too big, almost a sack, to have any real money in it. Her mousy hair was braided into two stiff pigtails. A Doris, if there ever was one. Pardon? She said, looking up. She had a fresh, black eye. You talk too much, pretty boy, said Mung. He levered his bulk off his stool. No trouble, said Sam, reaching under the bar. Yo, called Link. Leave him alone, cue ball. We just having some fun. Mung rotated towards Link. What the fuck did you just call me? The door opened and two people walked in. It was a man and a woman, and they were both wearing wolfman masks. Black-tipped noses, poofy Michael Landon hair, Elvis sideburns. The woman had a revolver. The man was gigantic. So huge he moved awkwardly, as if each part of his body had its own brain. Bonnie and Claude. Oh, geez, I said, thinking of the three thousand green beauties in the lining of my jacket. Claude stayed in front of the door. He was taller than the door, almost as wide. Bonnie hopped down the short flight of stairs and came over to the bar. She was carrying a frilly white basket with her other hand. Hands up, bitch, she barked at Sam. She pointed the revolver at the pool table. Get over there. She swung the gun towards Doris, then me. You too. Sam did what she was told. So did Doris. I stared at the hole at the end of the barrel for a long tick of eternity. My body turned as cold and empty as the distance between stars. Now, roared Bonnie. I backed towards the pool table, joining Sam and Doris. Sam looked like she was going to cry. 
Doris was hugging her purse. The only color in her face was the black eye. Claude took one giant stilted step and hauled Link out of his chair. Take it easy, Jack, cried Link. Claude shoved him towards the pool table. Get over there! Bonnie barked at Mung, who hadn't budged an inch since the arrival of our two trick-or-treaters. She set the frilly white basket on the bar and leveled the revolver at Mung. Or what? snorted Mung. You gonna shoot me with that? He turned his back on Bonnie and pointed at Claude. I don't care about the size of you. Get in my way and I'll make you eat that stupid mask. He strode towards the door, bald head glistening. Bonnie didn't shoot him. I squinted at the revolver in her hand. It was a toy. I slipped my fingers under the left cuff of my suit jacket. My three thousand green beauties weren't going anywhere tonight. Thank you very much, Mung. Bod blocked Mung's path. Mung never hesitated. He swung one bulbous arm, ramming a fist up into Claude's face. If Mung had hit me like that, it'd be all over. My face would be an eyesore. I'd never get another client. The veins were rising all over Mung's arms and scalp. You had to hand it to him. He looked sort of transcendent. He launched another fist, but Claude's arm shot out and yanked Mung into the air. Claude whirled and threw Mung towards the Pac-Man table. Mung sailed across the room, bounced over the table, knocking it on its side. The Pac-Man table made an electronic burp, and then the blank screen filled with glowing yellow dots and chomping ghosts. Holy croak, said Link. Sam started crying. My fingers turned to icicles and fell out of the sleeve of my jacket. It didn't matter that Bonnie's gun was a toy. Bod went over to Mung, picked him up by his wide leather belt, and carried him down the hallway to the ladies' room. He kicked open the door and tossed Mung inside. Bonnie and Claude kissed, tongues slurping. Bonnie strolled off towards the washroom. Claude came and stood in front of the pool table. He crossed his arms and loomed. Hey, Jack, said Link. Here, you can have it, man. It's all yours. He was holding out a greasy brown wallet. Crumpled paper, bus transfers, and a top baseball card were sticking out of it. Claude regarded the wallet. Take it, said Link. There's three MasterCards in it, and two Visas. They still good. I could open the safe for you, offered Sam. She had stopped crying. Her mascara had run, leaving big, sloppy purple runnels down her face. A scream came from inside the ladies' room. It was a chorus of all the worst things in life. Profound agony, hopeless pleading, abject fear. The scream stopped. Sam started crying again. Claude watched her faces, his gigantic body shaking with laughter. You can keep your money. He pointed at Link. We want you, then Sam, and you, then Doris, and you, then me, and you. Sam bent forward and puked. Bod looked down at the mess, nostrils flaring in disgust. Link took off, darting forward and ducking under Claude. Claude lunged for him, but he was too late. Link's basketball afro was already bouncing through the mismatched tables and chairs, his lumberjack shirt flying back like a cape. See ya, cried Link as he hurtled towards the entrance. Claude turned to follow, tripped, caught his balance on the bar. For a moment, Claude's mammoth back was to me as wide and inviting as a door. My fingers tensed, ready. But what if you miss? Claude went after Link. He plowed through tables and chairs, but Link was quick. He was already springing up the entrance steps, lumberjack shirt flapping. Don't look back. Don't look back. Link reached for the doorknob. He didn't look back. That's why he didn't see Bonnie. 
She slammed him into the door. She tore at him, shredding his shirt. He fought wildly, punching her, kicking. Then Claude joined the tangle. Link tried to keep fighting, but Claude was too much for him. Link never screamed, never made a sound while they killed him. I don't know why. Whether he didn't know what was happening or was hurt too badly to scream, or just wouldn't give them the satisfaction. His afro had been snatched bald in places. I don't remember the emergency exit at the end of the washroom hallway until they were finished. But what, you were going to run for it, like Link? Long odds, and you've never been one to risk your pretty face, have you? Bonnie and Claude walked back to the pool table. Who's next? said Claude. Sam retched again. Nothing came out this time but a dribble of complete hair. Doris clutched her sack purse. How about you, bitch? said Bonnie, flicking a finger through Sam's red hair. I stepped forward, away from the pool table, into a vast, desolate place. Bonnie and Claude both glanced at me in surprise. Take it back, take it back. You don't protect women. That's not what you do for women. What do we have here? said Claude. A hero? He turned to Bonnie, grinning. Isn't that just so sweet? I felt something take form inside me. Something clean and dense with potential, an ember of rage. Hey, Rover, I said to Claude. They stopped laughing. Bite me, I said. Doris inhaled sharply. Sam looked up at me, purple eyes wide. Clyde snorted. You think you're something special, huh? You're nothing but a walkin', talkin' Big Mac. He picked me up and shook me until it felt like my skeleton was liquefying. He carried me over to the washroom hallway. He kicked open the door of the ladies' room and threw me inside. I covered my head and gritted my teeth, bracing for impact. But I landed on something soft. was grateful until I realized what it was. Mung. Sort of. I scrambled off him. I saw why Mung had screamed the way he had. She had eaten him, or parts of him. I closed my eyes to keep the sickening, pulsing soup inside me from boiling over into the room and dissolving the world. I turned away from the sort of mung sprawled on the drenched floor. My hip bumped into something hard and my eyes opened. I was at the sink. They ate him. She's going to eat you. Eat you while you're still alive. Link never screamed. Never. Stopped fighting, then while they murdered him. I splashed water on my face, hid in its simple cold wetness. The door opened and Bonnie sauntered in. Hi there, she said. She came towards me, hips swaying. She raised her long arms, stained hands reaching for me. Wait, I said, smiling with all the heat and smoke in me, as if I had the sun hidden beneath my eyes. She paused. Are you going to beg for your life, pretty little... Dinner? I almost lost my smile. The boiling, pulsing soup tickled. The back of my throat scratched at the edge of my mind, wanting in. But I kept smiling, giving her everything I had. She swayed towards me. I know how to touch you, I said. I caressed my fingertips over the back of her head. She stopped. She stared at the goosebumps on her hand. Let me show you. I slid the tip of one finger across her palm. She shuddered. I traced intricate spider-leg patterns over her wrist and down her forearm. I brought up my other hand and did the same to her other arm, leaving a trail of shivery goosebumps. I could touch you in other places. 
She moved closer. Oh, such a clever little dinner. I made a circle with a thumb and forefinger, floated the circle towards one of her breasts. She arched her back. I paused. She buried her stained nails into the palms of her hands, waiting, waiting for my touch. I gently flicked my forefinger across her nipple. She groaned. I flicked again, harder, the shock of the pain exaggerating the pleasure. Take off your shirt, I whispered. She grabbed at her back, turtleneck, and tore it open. I gazed at her dark, avid eyes, promising her ecstasy. I drew an S down one breast, ending at the straining nipple. She wasn't wearing a bra. She locked urgent fingers around the back of my neck and pulled me to her. Her head lowered to her breast and... Oh, jeez. Her breast was covered with wavy, brown swirls of hair. Fur, light and downy, but still fur. From this close, I could see individual follicles coming out of the pale, blue-veined skin. Her nipples were a deep, satiny black. She dug her nails into the back of my neck. What's wrong, bitch? Why have you stopped? Her nails burrowed deeper. Blood trickled down my neck and nestled in the collar of my shirt. And you know something else, don't you? She'd already figured out that something wasn't right about Bonnie and Claude. You knew when you saw what they did to Mung. So what are you waiting for? I placed both hands on Bonnie's muscular back. I pulled her to me. I put my mouth over one of her nipples. I almost wrenched my head away from her breast when I felt something hot squirt into my mouth. I swallowed, knowing the only thing keeping her other appetites at bay was a flimsy gauze of bliss. At first, I thought it was my own blood, that I had bitten the inside of my mouth when Claude was shaking me, but the taste was wrong. Sweet as a soft peach, smoother than hundred-year-old scotch, radiant in my belly, spreading glowing tendrils throughout my body. I almost let the boiling, pulsing soup inhabit my mind, but my mouth, trained and obedient all these years, kept trying to make her forget anything else existed in the world but ecstasy. And it worked. Because she was still groaning with pleasure while I slipped my fingers under the left cuff of my suit jacket, drew Mac out of his sheath, and thrust the knife into her back. I'm good at two things. One, I used to make money. The other thing I use every once in a while to make sure no one takes my money away from me. To make sure no one takes anything away from me. I just killed you, I whispered like a lover. She stared at me, panting, breasts heaving. She hadn't realized she wasn't in ecstasy. I held up Mac, his serrated blade glistening with her life. She bent an arm around behind her and touched the hole in her back. Her eyes were confused, clouded with imminent agony. Pretty little corpse, I said, and cut her neck from Elva's sideburn to sideburn. She staggered away from me, tripped over Mung, and fell into his contorted embrace. I went over to the sink, stuck two fingers down my throat, and emptied my stomach onto the cracked porcelain. I rinsed my mouth out with cold water. I walked across the drenched floor and opened the door. Claude's massive, shaggy head turned towards the washroom hallway as soon as he heard the door open. Hey, Jack, I said. He actually did a double-take, eyes bulging out of his hairy face. Surprised to see me, I ambled down the hallway. Oh, by the way, I held up Mac. I made lamb chops out of her. Marcia, said Claude. He shook his head, then clawed at his cheeks, leaving tears of blood. Marcia? I stopped at the end of the hallway. 
Marcia. Claude bent his head back and howled. I waited. He charged, bounding across the room. Each leap toppled mismatched tables and chairs, his last jump flattening a table decorated with pink flamingos. I threw Mac. Claude saw the knife flicking towards his head and raised his arms, but Mac dipped suddenly and thunked into his chest. He spun past me and crashed into the wall. I'm good at two things. Sometimes I'm very good. I went over to Claude. He was still alive, but the only place he'd be going anytime soon was to meet his maker. And who would that be? Who made him? And who made the other one lying on the floor with sort of mung, deep black satiny nipples milk like the birth of the universe? I looked away from Claude, over at Sam and Doris. They were frozen, still and unreal as a portrait, two astonished women. I walked over to them. I smiled. Damned if I didn't wink, too. Boy, I sure could use a dr- Neither woman was looking at me anymore. Another portrait. Two petrified women. I didn't bother turning around. Can't kill one that easy, dummy. I took off for the bar, hearing tables and chairs toppling behind me, snuffling breath. I dove over the bar. I plunged the mucky floor in a shower of cigarette butts and peanut shells. I scrabbled on all fours over the spot where Sam had been when Bonnie and Claude came in. I flung glasses off the shelves, searching for whatever weapon Sam had been reaching for under the bar. Claude landed on the bar over my head, splintering wood. He lowered one arm towards me. Mac was still sticking out of his chest as if it were just some kind of trendy new bling. I found what Sam had been reaching for. A cell phone. Claude latched his hand around my neck and dragged me towards his maw. I tried to scream, but something else came out. She was mine before she died. He hesitated. Can't you smell her on me? I said. His black nostrils flared and quivered with the knowledge he was inhaling. No, Marcia would never. His head exploded, coming apart like a jigsaw puzzle tipped off its table. Slowly, limb by limb, his freight train body toppled down behind the bar. I slid away from the mass of hair and muscle and gore. I climbed to my feet using a Guinness spigot as a handhold. Doris was standing in front of the bar, sack purse in one hand, a very large, very shiny, silver handgun in the other. I think, I said, I love you, Doris. She nodded grimly and lowered the gun. Storm, she said, with an H. Storm, I said, glancing up at the ceiling, expecting to see dark clouds. With an H? My name's Storm, said Doris, with a silent H on the end. Oh, I said. She leaned over the bar and looked at Claude. One of his boots was stuck in the bar sink. Claude had worn a size 18. I tugged Mac out of his chest. Monsters roam the world, eat you alive. Knife in the chest won't kill them. Deep black satiny nipples milk like the beginning of a life. Sorry it took me so long to get him, said Doris. No, Storm, with a silent H on the end. I never had a chance to do anything until you distracted him. Ropes are way too dangerous to take one alone. She shook her head, making her pigtails swing. I came here as an afterthought. I've always had a bad feeling about the other bartender. Tonight confirms he's a collaborator. Bob knew these two? She nodded, mouth tight. I think it's a certainty that he was part of this. What are you talking about? said Sam. She had floated over to the bar and was looking back and forth between us. What did you call them? I said. 
Ropes, as in lycanthropes, Storm pointed at Claude. Him and his mate were skin poppers. Huh? said Sam. Werewolves, I said, just like in the movies. American werewolf in London. I was a teenage werewolf. Abbott and Costello meet the wolf. Ma- yes, yes, that's right, said Storm. Just like that. Give or take a few details. She tapped the shiny silver gun on the sole of Claude's boot, like a professor pointing out some fascinating concept on a blackboard. We think they're using some kind of mutagenized transgenic retrovirus. Ah, I nodded. That explains everything. Storm gave me a hard look, hovering somewhere between impatience and ire. She turned to Sam. Could you make us some coffee? I think we could all use something hot to drink. Oh, none for me, thanks. Had enough hot drinks to last a lifetime. Okay, sure. Sam floated down to the end of the bar. Storm went over and picked up the frilly white basket at the bar, the one Bonnie had brought into this fine establishment. She set the basket in front of me. I peered inside. There was a baby inside. Pudgy face, fresh baby smell, big saucer eyes, two tiny fang teeth poking through pink gums, the sharpest pins. Give me your knife, said Storm. She held out a hand. I looked up. What? Give me your knife. I have to finish the job. It's just a... She slammed her fist onto the bar. It's an abomination. A sound came from the basket. Blug, said he. She, it, I don't know. I poked my head inside the basket. The baby was smiling. Blug. Don't worry, I whispered. Don't worry, little guy. What are you doing? You hate babies. Women cooing over them because that's what they're supposed to do. No past, no mistakes, only a coddled present, a rosy-cheeked future. Get away from it, said Storm, raising the silver handgun. Are you serious? I said. She didn't say anything. The answer was in her eyes. You get that shiner battling werewolves, I said, like you did tonight, watching while other people fight and die. She stared at me, eyes steady, gun steady. I backed away from the basket. Mug, said the baby. Sam came back carrying a tray with three grubby mugs of coffee and Kit Kats that had been broken into individual fingers. She looked down at Clyde. I thought these these things could only be killed by silver bullets or something like that. I regarded the blood-spattered corpse for a second. The slug had torn a chunk off the side of his head. Evidently, massive brain damage also does the trick. She nodded. Lucky for us all, those movies got it wrong. She sat the tray on the bar. I made some coffee for you. Thanks, said Storm, and shot the baby. Monsters roam the world. Beasts with Elvis sideburns and Michael Landon hair and... Storm pointed the gun at my chest. And pigtails. I wouldn't do that if I were you, she said. What? I stared at the maw of the end of the shiny silver barrel. Do what? Put the knife down, she said. I don't want to hurt you. I looked at Mac, surprised. He was by my ear, throwing position. Okay, take it easy. I slowly lowered Mac and slid him back into his sheath. I won't do anything stupid. I turned to Sam. She was crying. Again. I squeezed her shoulder, and since I couldn't think of anything else, I said, Your mascara's running. I walked out from behind the bar. Hey. Called Storm. Where are you going? 
She followed me as I headed towards the washroom hallway. We need to talk. Bane could use someone like you. I passed the shattered Pac-Man table. Are you just going to leave? She said. You've seen true evil and now you're running away? I went down the hallway to the emergency exit. I looked back. Storm was glaring at me. Shiny, silver handgun resting on her shoulder like a rifle. Sam was still holding the tray. The frilly white basket had a gaping black hole. What's your name? I said to Sam. Joanna. My name's Joanna. Joanna. Joe. I smiled at her. No heat. Or smoke. A real one. She tried to smile back. I opened the emergency exit and stepped out into the narrow alley. We'll be seeing you again, yelled Storm. That's a promise. The alley stank. The dumpster near the exit was a lodestone of foulness, drawing and magnifying every horrid odor in the alley. A host of stenches clawed at my noses. Rancid oranges, maggoty fish, the sour old stink of a man's running shoe. Wet, moldy cardboard, the sickly sweet of sun-fried cola. Man's running shoe. I stopped. I stared at the dumpster. How did I know there was a man's running shoe in there? Something moved on the other side of an old car, halfway down the alley. A padded, stealthy movement. Mac leaped into my hand. I crouched, low, waited. A cat dashed out from under the car. He drank some. There were no lights in the alley. The surrounding buildings were high enough to block out the streetlights, but I could see the color of the fleeing cat, a pudgy, nutmeg-colored tom. I could smell the piquant vapors of the tom's fear, the tart hone of its sex. He drank some of her. I ran down the alley. I passed the cat before he reached the street. The tom froze, looking up at me as I bounded over him, fur bristling, ears back. The scent of its terror reminded me of Glenfiddich. My car was parked beside the mouth of the alley. The fumy, cloggy metal smell of the Porsche made my stomach churn. I unlocked the door and got in. The inside of the car smelled like blood. I snatched Mac back out, but the car was empty. The blood smell was coming from me, from my suit. I breathed in the sweet, narcotic aroma. It reminded me of Glenfiddich that had been aged since the birth of the universe. I gulped down the aroma, couldn't stop sucking it in, until the car began to turn its mist and the only real thing in the world was Bonnie and Claude, their hot, warm, smothering nectar. I ran Mac across the palm of one hand, grasping onto the pain. The private, comforting smell of my own existence... When the car started to feel solid again, I put Mac down on the passenger seat, tugged off my tie, and wrapped it around my bleeding hand. I jammed the Porsche into gear and pulled away from the alley. I glanced up at the moon. It was a crescent, as fine and bright as the blade of a scimitar. Shouldn't it be full? Wasn't that one of the rules? When there was a half a city between me and O.G.'s tavern, I took the flask of Glenfiddich out of the glove compartment. I took a long, long swig, or started to. I opened the car window and spat out the foul liquid. It tasted like distilled poison. I looked up at the bright crescent moon and decided Storm, with a silent H at the end, had been right when she promised I'd be seeing her again. I would definitely be seeing Storm and her bane, whoever or whatever that was, again. And Bob, Bob, the collaborator, and Sam, 
Joanna, maybe I would call her sometime and ask her how she's doing. Maybe ask her if she wanted to go for a coffee. But I wouldn't be seeing Mrs. Welton or any of my other clients again. I was through with trick-or-treating. When asked what kind of writing he does, Mr. Tressel averred that he never sets out to write a specific kind of story. I'm basically a genre hopper, he says, about both his writing and his reading. Because of this habit, he says, he has grown to think of all fiction, whether novel, movie, or TV show, as good story, okay story, or bad story. For my writing, he says... I always aim for the first, try to avoid the last, and do my best not to end up meeting in the middle. Having a Drink was originally published in the anthology Decadence II under its original title, OGs. This, by the way, was one of those stories of his that was honorably mentioned in the year's best fantasy and horror, and it has been reprinted in the British anthology The Last Diner from Fringeworks. A short film, by the way, based on Having a Drink, was released last October. More information about the film can be found at havingadrink, one word, dot com. And T.T. Tressel's author website is tttressel.com. All of those will be on the Tales to Terrify Facebook page and on the Tales to Terrify homepage. Having a Drink was narrated for us tonight by Tales to Terrify's co-editor, Stephen Kilpatrick, and a fine job he did with it, too. In addition to being co-editor of this effort and a frequent narrator here in the Nook, Stephen is a customer service professional living in Northern Virginia. He has a degree in culinary arts and is an avid fan of fiction and board games and enjoys hiking Virginia's Old Rag Mountain. In addition to all that, he works in information technology and recently began volunteering in prisons. The most recent information I have about Stephen, though, is that he likes unflavored loose-leaf teas. And that, children of the night, is that for the week. Be off with you, as M.R. James was wont to say at the end of his Christmas readings. Until next week, of course, at which time you'll be welcome again. And we'll have something utterly different for our amuse and abusement. Grab whatever you brought and set your feet on the homeward path. There are cubs out there tonight, I may as well warn you. And there may be other creatures that are not of our nights, so... It's best you take the side streets, the alleys. You can handle a few critters that shift skins, hmm? Of course you can. You've been coming here and leaving here for nearly... Egad, nearly two and a half years now. Well, you know the roots. You know the darkness. 
And, of course, you know how to turn terrors into merely pleasant dreams. Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.